Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by CFM. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Jason DeRees, who was one of the very earliest employees of UBS's alternative data platform, Evidence Lab, and who has recently become a very active and followed commentator on the alternative data space. In our conversation, Jason and I discuss the UBS Evidence Lab's development, as well as Jason's views on alternative data's future consolidation, how banks approach the space, and the data he wishes he could have got his hands on. So on this episode, I am joined by Jason DeRees, formerly of UBS Evidence Lab. Thank you very much for joining today, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, really excited to be on the podcast. Oh, we're very excited to have you. I'm very excited to have you. Um, Jason, I say formerly of UBS Evidence Lab. I mean, since you've left UBS Evidence Lab in uh, uh, March 2023, you really, you've been very um, active and uh, vocal and, and kind of, I think a lot of people would have become deeply aware of you, I think, in the last, in the last, uh, in, in the last year, um, just because of your, your excellent work, really, around the data community. And, and, um, and yeah, I particularly enjoy your, the questions that you put out when, ahead of major alternative data events, questions that should be asked on, uh, on platforms. So, it's, uh, so yeah, it's great to, great to have you on the, on the, on the podcast and really looking forward to hearing your overall um, opinions and, 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 and uh, thoughts about the alternative data situation. Well, thanks. I've, I've really enjoyed writing the data score. It's, um, I've had a lot of ideas about the data community and uh, it's been enjoyable to write. And I guess it's, you know, once a sell-side analyst who is writing research reports multiple times a week and then, and then you know, going into Evidence Lab, we were, you know, we were supporting the analysts who were writing those research reports. Um, you know, it's just something that I've really enjoyed getting back into writing and, you know, it's helped with uh, data course as, you know, a business getting the name out there and, and being able to do consulting work in the data community. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let's, um, let's start then as we as, as I tend to in these in these episodes with um, kind of run through your your background a little bit. Um, so you, you, you begin your, your career begins in Sanford Bernstein in, in, uh, July, 2004. I, and I suspect that's where you're saying you're, you're, you're writing your research, but it also under skills in your LinkedIn, you've got, um, alternative data. So, uh, that seems very early for alternative data. How was, how was alternative data coming into your job at that point? Yes. So of course we didn't call it alternative data back then. It was just data. And then that's me sounding like some alt rocker. In the 90s saying, oh, it's just rock music. But in Bernstein, this is really where it was ingrained in me that you had to have proof behind what your, your points of view were. So when I was at Bernstein, I was very junior. I was, I was an associate and um, seeing brilliant people with these long-term views pieced together with not only their industry experience, but going out and doing really grassroots, bottom-up work to tell the story. And I also saw going to the morning meetings, when an analyst occasionally didn't do that and just sort of said, well, I think this is going to happen, that sales force ripped that person to shreds right in front of everybody. <laughs> so it was like, you need data. And so in those early days, uh, we were pulling data that was 
on the web using VBA in Excel to scrape the web. Uh, we were using government data, but going really granular into it. So when I was on the health services team, there was this change in policy at the time. And we went into all this data about how prescription drugs were reimbursed to build up a model of what this new policy can look like. And we were building it in Microsoft Access. The, the retail team at that time was pulling locations of retailers and figuring out the overlap of the trade areas to understand competition uh, and all, all sorts of things like that. And we, and we didn't think of it as anything different than just, yeah, yeah, it was just trying to scale up the, the approach of, of gathering data and do it as efficiently as possible because really what we wanted to get to was the so what, like what does this actually mean? We, did, we didn't uh, think about it as doing data for the sake of data. It was trying to answer a question. This this sounds like a theme which I think is going to echo through your through your career and experience is that you had questions that you wanted to answer and so you went and found the data which would which would help you answer it. It was it really it really does bleed forward into 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 what's to come, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I took that with me through my whole career and and joining UBS as a senior analyst that uh, the age of twenty seven as a senior analyst covering European beverages in London like that stuck with me. I needed data and proof. And if I didn't have it, I didn't feel comfortable making the, the recommendations that I would have made. Yeah, yeah. So you joined, so you joined UBS in uh, September 2007. Uh, you weren't to know that it was not an auspicious moment for the financial, <laughs> financial services world, but, um, uh, but uh, you, you clung in there through, yes. the, through the storm. <laughs> well, that, uh, I mean, that, that it, for me, I, I wanted to be a sell side analyst, like coming out of university at Syracuse, that is all I wanted to do. I went and got the CFA designation. I studied finance and accounting. I had an economics minor and I got there. And I was, I was pretty young, 27, when I became a senior analyst writing research reports for myself. And then, you know, here comes the money, right? And then the financial crisis hits, but that was some learning experience to see the trading floor uh, on like the most awful days and uh, see real leadership from inside the bank trying to keep everybody together and maybe so, you know some sometimes some things that didn't land so well so it was a great learning experience and we survived through it it was an amazing time it's uh, uh, Hemingway says that you during war you learn a lot more about you learn more about a man in in a day than you would in 20 years knowing him during peacetime it's it's one of those times where you really yeah. kind of get to know people in 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 deep when when the crisis hits but um but let's if you if you if you allow me just a a, a slight detour because you say you came out of Syracuse, Syracuse University and you were very into um you you always wanted to be, to be a sell side analyst do you think if you were if you'd um graduated in 2022 do you think that could still be the case? Do you think you might have graduated 20 years later with the same desire or has being a sell-side analyst um, would it have the same dream cachet that, 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 that it had back then? You know, that's interesting. I think for me, the reason I was so drawn to it, and I actually didn't start that way. I, I knew I wanted to do business in some way. And I think that came from my family's business. Like my dad had a auto salvage, a junkyard, like they would buy cars that were beaten up but the parts were worth more and they would you know take the car apart sell the scrap and sell the parts and I had uh, other family members who had their own businesses like auto dealerships and uh, just being at the dinner table and talking about business and what was working and not even in like high school that that really got me excited about business I didn't know it was going to be financial markets until my friends joined the investment club at, at Syracuse and we we're managing real money granted it was hundred 
$50,000 or something like that at the peak, uh, but it was real money. And that's when I really fell in love with investing and trying to figure out the puzzle that the market is. And, um, you know, that was during the dot-com bubble. So we learned a lot in a very safe way there. I, I think that would have stayed with me that I really wanted to, you know, be part of business, be part of decision-making and, I, yeah, think, I was asking. Yeah. I was asking. I was asking more about the the way sell side research has changed. Oh, you know, in the in the in two thousand and two, they were they were the master of the universe, and in two thousand twenty two, <laughs> there's there's endless you know uh, thought pieces in the Financial Times saying sell side research as a model is is dead. Um, sure. Do you do you how, what's your what's your view on that? I guess that's uh, I I haven't thought about it for for me personally, but I do see that elsewhere that it's it's harder to recruit versus. Uh, other industries that are more glamorous. I'm sure right now everybody in university is like, oh, I'm going into AI. <laughs> and yeah. so there's going to be whatever the the hype cycles are of the time that's going to attract people. Um, but I did find even through maybe even the last 10 years when tech itself was our main competition for young talent, there were, there were people who really enjoyed the puzzle of the financial markets and that it's sort of a never-ending process. And um, that more so than the financial gains of being good at it, I think is really what drives people to get into the industry. But yeah, yeah. to be fair, you know, there are people that are going to always go for whatever they think is the hottest thing. And that's going to be the, the, where the riches of talent are. So I suspect that's AI right now. Anybody that's AI, anything. Okay. And so you join, you join UBS and you join uh, into, into Southside research doing European beverages Let's, if we, um, if we can, let's let's kind of try and swizzle forward a little bit to how does because UBS Evidence Lab is a very familiar name in the alternative data space. I think UBS was was kind of first potentially in 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 attacking alternative data and putting a name on it and saying right we're really going to um, have a solution to this to this question as to as to alternative data is happening and UBS wants to be first. Um, how does that um, how does that come across? How does that come into your life? Sure. Well, I think as a I, I, by that point, I was a retail analyst in New York, and I was trying to do all of these more advanced techniques with data and collect more data by myself. And when Evidence Lab was just an idea, um, Barry Hurwitz and Juan Luis Perez came over from Morgan Stanley, where you know I would I would give them the nod at at Alpha wise that at Morgan Stanley that they were trying to do it first and when they came to UBS evidence lab was an idea I had a long laundry list of things that I wanted them to do for me <laughs> and so I was like client number one actually my name is on the first evidence lab report as an analyst that we were yeah. doing uh, something with uh, uh, collecting prices using uh, crowdsource price collection which I don't re recommend as a good approach versus what we ended up figuring out how to do but I, I became client number one into becoming a key part of the team and one of the first 10 people in Evidence Lab. And my, my first role was helping all the other analysts understand what they could do with data to answer questions and start bridging that gap between all the brilliant uh, technical ability that we had and all these great ideas of what we could do, really getting everybody on the same page. And, and I think that approach was different than what had been happening elsewhere that we really were able to connect the dots between the questions that need to be answered, creative ideas on how to answer it. Not all of them worked, but then the ones that work, we figured out how to scale up. And I think that's really where it took off. 
so uh, Jason, introduce quickly if you if you if you can introduce what is UBS Evidence Lab and where yeah how well I mean what was it at first and how has it how has it evolved? So I think even when I joined Evidence Lab, I still wasn't calling it alternative data, but I would say it, we were trying to be the biggest alternative data platform on the sell side, and we saw our competition as the other sell side firms, and what we really wanted to do was turn the UBS sell side analysts into rock stars. Like we wanted them to be the go-to people, not only because they were brilliant, but they were armed with a tremendous amount of data that no one else had. And so at the early stages, it was very one project at a time. Uh, a few of us in, in the initial team really thought about, okay, how do I cover 300 sell side analysts across the globe in every sector, in every geography? And we were a tiny team at that point. So we were thinking about how to scale it up just to have a high impact, but that later led to how we thought about it as a data product. And that there was a shift in time in Evidence Lab's history where we thought about adding more client verticals. And that happened in 2019, we started to make the data available to the buy side directly. Uh, not only that, we started working with uh, private equity, we started working with um, other parts of the bank um, because we moved outside of the research barrier. Um, and so we were trying to add lots of verticals. And I think at that point, we were trying to think about uh, the alternative data space and Evidence Lab as being the largest in total and being able mm -hmm. to tackle any sort of problem out there and build economies of scale across how we produce the data and economies of scope of the data so that the same data sets could answer many questions. So we so went on a journey there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so you started up very much as your customer was the was the, were the analysts, and you That's were right. trying to just be the data arm of the research department, who could then, well, I I don't know. I mean, almost like a a kind of data journalist in the newspaper that you would be um, adding something, you know, a graphic or something to the article to to really kind of make it pop or or giving some underlying data, which would, I don't know, the economist intelligence unit to the economist, I don't know, something like that, right. where you're, where you're providing the data for the, for the, uh, as to, to the team, which is putting out the kind of publishing the product in a way. Um, that, that's, that's, that's a hundred percent right. And what we did was we worked with the analyst from the brainstorming process around what the key questions are, which the analyst was absolutely the expert on. They're in the flow of the market every day. They know what, they can answer on their own and they know what the market can answer, but they knew what was important to answer. And in UBS Lingo was the pivotal questions that shows up in their research. If you had that right question, that if you knew the answer and we were able to provide that answer with data in a novel way, those analysts, you had to talk to them if you were on, on the buy side because you needed the data and you needed to know what it meant. And that, that's what we armed them to do. So a lot of ways I think of Evidence Lab as the, the team behind the F1 drivers, like, like we want, you know, Lewis Hamilton's going to be the star, our, our you know, top rated analysts at UBS were going to be the star. And then, you know, Evidence Lab was going to be, you know, that, that big team behind them that makes them superstars. You're the, you're the, you're the guy on the front wheel in the pit stop, are you? <laughs> yeah, so I think we would want to think of ourselves as those, uh, the guy that, the you know, engineers and yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the screws out and quick, well, quick notes. Uh, or, or, well, we definitely had, well, those are the those are the you no, know no, the, no. Sorry, the real you're heroes. The guy, you're the you're the guy with a with a headset on and uh, telling telling the guy with the drill what to do. Right, and having the monitors, yeah, having the monitors and all the unique data points coming through, and then going back and figuring out why it worked or didn't work. And uh, when it worked the best, though, the analysts were bought in that we were, um, you know, 
providing them data that had high integrity, it was predictive, it, it was answering the question that they needed to answer. And if we did that well, they would come back to us with more questions and they would give us feedback and we would work back and, and forth to build something that was uh, scalable and highly relevant. And, you know, it started in a very difficult place. I mean, in the beginning, there were some, and I, and I think this happens elsewhere now that I've been out there talking about, you know, what, what my experiences have been and, and giving advice on how to get through this. I think everywhere there's this challenge when you start a data practice or trying to build a data product, there's going to be a lot of skepticism. And in those early days, I mean, we had one analyst tell us that they would rather launch on 10 new companies than do one project with us. And as context, it takes months to launch on a single company. <laughs> one analyst told us she thought Evidence Lab was a tax uh, on her. Um, but we, you know, once we showed the success with a few analysts who were believers, we social proofed it, we showed the success, there was a bit of fear of missing out, and more people got on board and it just built a lot of momentum. Okay. Okay. So, um, so you're, you're the kind of the data guys who are underpinning the, the research initially, where are you getting the data from? Are you buying it? Are you creating it? Are you looking for it within UBS? Are you getting it from public sources for free? Are you, have you, have you got a budget to go out and buy alternative data in a kind of a lot of people who've been on this podcast might've sold it to you? What, what, what kind of data are we talking about? Yeah, it was all of the above. We, the one thing that was great about building evidence lab at UBS, we didn't have to worry about funding. Uh, the, the firm was bought into it and we were able to get what we needed to grow and to get data. We, we did a lot ourselves. I would say two thirds was our own data, either through web mining or other techniques, but we use lots of uh, third party vendors. We worked to figure out vendors, partners that maybe hadn't sold to anybody yet because uh, we really wanted to do things that were proprietary. Uh, we did things that didn't scale, like we bought you know, we paid for a Tesla to be bought and torn apart piece by piece to figure out, you know, who was supplying and what the costs were and, you know, to answer a much longer term question about when would electric vehicles be cheaper to make than uh, combustible engine vehicles. So we were, we were, and because we worked with, again, 300 analysts in every geography, like we were trying to figure out how can we get an edge on the Vietnam beer market? And we were figuring out, you know, wh what could we do with the Australia food retail or, you know, and obviously all the big things that were happening were the large market cap where we were playing, but it was so broad um, that meant we had to look everywhere for data. So you're a team who literally um, just, I mean, we, it just sounds so, it sounds like the A-team. You were, you were kind of traveling the world trying to, trying to um, you know, a different project every day, pulling a Tesla apart one day, and then the next day you're, you're drinking Vietnamese beer. I mean, is it, um, <laughs> yes. what's, what's, what's the... Um, it sounds so unstructured. Like, how is this? How are you building structure into this? Well, we didn't have much structure in the beginning. It was there was a uh, market research team in the beginning, and then there was the the digital side, as we were sort of called. And we didn't have a team structure. And once we started to get momentum, we found a lot of different structures that helped us move forward, but wasn't really optimal. So at one point, we had more of a consulting model. We had engagement managers and practice areas. And so I sort of helped set up this engagement manager structure where they were working with the analysts to understand the questions and helping the analysts um, get the most from Evidence Lab uh, so that they wouldn't have to go to every single person in Evidence Lab and figure out their specialty. Um, 
you know, but behind the scenes, we were bringing in all sorts of specialists. Like we had people that were uh, climatology specialists. We had people that were full stack developers. We had people that specialized in uh, shipping data and, and AIS data. And so, so we were building all that expertise and the engagement managers made it easy, but that was the goal. And then we had the practice areas, which kind of McKinsey speak, they were product areas. And so actually I led one of those product areas. I led our uh, web mine pricing product area for a number of years. Um, and so, and so that provided some scraping prices off the internet. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And using third-party uh, data as well, uh, and and doing it across many sectors. So trying to figure out how do how do we how do not only how do we get maybe airline pricing data or telco um, bundle pricing or mortgage rates, but then also how do you analyze it so that it actually makes sense in a uh, business sense. So it's not just data for data's sake. We were building metrics that were fundamentally driven. And, and that worked for a while, but then we all, we ran out of capacity. We built actually a lot of silos. So, you know, thinking about how do you structure and organize it, we actually had to scrap that plan and flatten the organization and go with uh, a team of data strategists, which, which they became called. It was, we had a couple names for that team, but that was the team that I led. Um, and then we had a uh, execution team or a data ops team uh, that was world-class. I mean, they are the unsung heroes of Evidence Lab. That's where the majority of the staff is. And, uh, and, then, and then we had you know, a team of data engineers that were figuring out once we got to product market fit where, you know, with the analysts and, uh, and eventually with the buy site where we knew it was working, we figured out how to scale it up. And we always had that innovation going. We had multiple innovation teams. Um, one of those innovation teams started in our data strategy team, but they were doing data scouting and, 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 and starting to do the... Um, building blocks of turning that data into something that was a product that had to get spun out of our team and became its own thing because there was just so much demand. Are you using for data sourcing, are you using the, the kind of UBS client network? Are you, uh, would you be going to the to corp, big corporates and saying, look, we, we've got a good relationship. We know you've got lots of data. We can help you by monetizing it. We'll pay you for it or we'll take it to market. Was it working like that? Or was it, was it literally going out wild west and trying to find companies out of, or, or trying to find, yeah, maybe companies or, or, um, or sources of data, which had nothing to do with UBS. Um, I think we did a little bit of everything again, just because the nature of the questions that we were getting, um, but every so often there would be a big theme that would happen that many teams would benefit from. And that's where we really focused our efforts. And some of it's desk research, some of it's, you know, being active in the data community and conferences and networking. Um, occasionally there would be an opportunity where somebody knew somebody and they hadn't monetized their data before, or we would reach out to them cold and say, hey, you probably have amazing data. Did you ever think of packaging it in a way that was uh, safe for you as a company, but more people could use it? And so th those were high, higher uh, effort, high reward, but low probability of working out. But we did, we did all of that. Okay. Okay. Jolly good. So uh, you mentioned 2019, um, you start selling the data as data um, rather than putting it into research and selling it or, or, or giving it to clients or whatever. Um, do you, uh, what was the, what was the thinking behind that? Do you think it was, it was UBS, like we've got, we've got all this data and it's, and it's once it's been used for research, it's sitting to waste and we can, we can maximize or how, how did the, how did, how did that, how did that come about? Sure. Well, for, for the early part of evidence lab, the only way to 
uh, get an insight that was that was uh, evidence lab derived was through the research report. We didn't share any of the data. And we just kept hearing from the buy side, can I get the data behind that chart? Can I get the data behind the chart? And we finally got to the point where we thought we could do it without sacrificing the success of the research department. And that, that was you know, late 2018, really launching in 2019. And um, you know, there's uh, an adage in the, in the tech world that if you launch a product and you're not embarrassed by it, you've launched too late. Well, we really embraced that. So we you know, went from working one project at a time, one analyst at a time. I mean, I can tell you as, as the, the WebMind pricing practice area lead, we would work with analysts in the same sector in different geographies. And I would just say yes to any of their requests. So it was even in the same sector, the product was different. And yet we just sort of put this up and made it available to buy. And it must've been so hard. Uh, I know it was so hard for the buy side to, to use the data then because it, was, it wasn't organized as a data product. So we went on a very uh, steep uh, learning curve and I think moved up it very quickly, but, but uh, turning the, it actually into a data product that was easier to use. Uh, so, so, but, but yeah, in 2019, it was like, get out there, be in, in, in the action. And, you know, I think what we found is the same as what happens in research. Research is sold. It's not bought. And that's the same thing with, with data. And, and even though we had so much press and a huge sales force and all these analysts using it, we still learned we had to turn into data pride and we had to go out and tell that story. And, and that, that took a few years to get to the scale that we, you know, they got to by the time I left. Yeah, interesting. So what was the what was the data which I don't know if you were most personally proud of because you worked on it or or the data which you think was the was the best offering? What what types of data do you think was a was a best example of of when it when it hit the street? Um, sure. Yeah. I think I was probably most proud of what we did in 2020 during the pandemic and the early part of the pandemic. So, you know, we, we were chatting before about the financial crisis and I was, you know, at the time I was a European beverage analyst and I, like there wasn't much I can do to affect the outcome of what was going on. Um, you know, sure, there were some companies that were over levered and we were really quick to point out that those should be celebrated, but it, it didn't really move the needle. What I thought we were able to do in Evidence Lab in February, 2020 forward was jump headfirst into this worldwide problem, figure out what data can we get? What are the questions that need to be answered first? What data can we get? And just start pushing it out there. And we made it available for free to the press just to try to be helpful. And I think a lot of companies did that. I mean, Google did that. They took you know, their location data and made it available. And a number of other companies did that. And I just felt like we were so far ahead of what was actually happening uh, that anybody that, was, that was, had access to our data just was really able to navigate in their sector this at, at the time, obviously, just so many unknowns. And to get ahead of it, I was just really proud of the whole, the whole thing together to be able to do that because we invented a whole host of new products at that point. Um, we changed the way that we were working at the same time to try to get to that scale and the pace of innovation just really accelerated. So I think it is that, that whole period. Um, and, and, and then you know, we kept that going forward. You know, thankfully, there hasn't been uh, another major major uh, drama right after that and we kind of went back to more of like okay well let's work on the individual debates in each sector and geography but that that period was was i'm quite proud of and and, and i think it really made a difference for anybody that had access to the data nice excellent 
Um, brilliant. Well, Jason, let's uh, let's change pace now um, because, as I mentioned at the beginning, you've 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 kind of had a had a, a new life in the last in the last year as a kind of a <laughs> prognosticator and a and a and a wise head, um, having been an alternative data since you know. I mean, uh, as you say, you were sort of doing it since two thousand three, and you were there at the beginning of Evidence Lab, etc. So you're you're you've kind of you've experienced a lot, and and your opinions are very are very valid and and and, and important. I think. Um, and useful. I don't want to don't well, want to <laughs> blow, blow your head up too much. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but so well. I mean, first of all, on banks. I mean, how where do you see banks' relationship with alternative data right now? The the big banks, and and obviously you've had you've had hands on experience from the inside. But it but it feels like each bank has has approached the problem differently um, and is having different. Um, different results i suppose and mm. and um do you feel anyone's nailed it do you where, where do you see all the banks as being with alternative data now and where do you think the future of banks with alternative data will be sure well i do think that if you're a sell-side analyst whether you're working at a place like ubs where the effort's centralized or another place where it might be decentralized and each team's on their own like you can't avoid it you need data at this point to uh, be valuable to the buy side because the the buy side that's paying the most uh, commissions, you know, they're paying for you know corporate access, they're paying for good advice, but they're also paying for data, and so it would be really hard to compete if you didn't have a data strategy, whether it's scattered or centralized. But I think also extending that to the buy side, there there are firms that are really good at it. They've got big teams, you know, hundred plus, and then it really drops off. So there's kind of a mirror between, you know, the fragmented approach at many companies and the fragmented approach of many sell-side companies and buy-side companies, and then a few that have decided to centralize. And I think the ones that have centralized and put the money behind it, they're getting, you know, the returns from it, that they're able to compete. What's hard is once enough people do that, you start to run into everybody doing the same technique on the same problem with the same data set, and now the insight is in the share price. And so I think there's gonna be an evolution in terms of what kind of questions get answered. And that's just the nature of the financial markets because the questions will change once the, the answer is known. Um, so, so now people are getting the answer quicker. They don't have to wait to the results are out to find out that one company outperformed their closest competitor. There's enough alternative data, in, especially in consumer facing sectors that can tell you that answer well ahead and be, be more likely to be right than, you know, old techniques without data. So uh, what's going to get harder is if everybody can answer that same question. Uh, well, that's great if you're a data provider because you have to have that data. You have to, everybody has to buy it because you can't not have it. You need to know what's going on. But now if you want to have an edge, you got to go find other data or you got to answer different questions really is what, what would drive the need for other data. But in, in terms of, in terms of um, the different banks and their approaches, and so I feel like there is a there's a big bank who has uh, decided their approach to alternative data is they will um, help use their corporate relationships, their relationships with their with with their corporate clients mm. to um, help those corporate clients unleash their data to the market and take a and take a as a kind of middleman and and use that trust relationship to to facilitate bringing that data to the market and 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 getting a a nice profit in the in the meantime i yeah. I, I imagine 
Um, and then there's other ones who have a bit more of the kind of, oh, it's just another way of doing research, which is kind of a little bit like right. UBS, but UBS was a, a very big version of that and really threw their full welly behind it. Whereas I've had, I've had Jeffries on this, on this, mm. uh, on this, although Rain has, has since left, but um, and Jeffries were Rain was kind of similarly in a in a perhaps on a smaller scale trying to use data to help the research effort. Um, right. I've had I've had I've had Barclays on, which is which is probably um, releasing data driven research themselves. They're they're right. they're kind of they are they're publishing. They're they're kind of there's a team there who are publishing data research. Um, so. Different different banks, and then I've 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 spoken uh, anecdotally to other banks who have said, um, uh, I, well, they've kind of asked big open questions about alternative data. What do you think about mm. this alternative data? Where's it going? I mean, should we be? Is there, what should we be doing about it? Type thing. Right. Um, how do you see the? Do you, do you think people have swung and missed? Do you think there is a there's an evolution towards some kind of center central goal going on? What 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 do you see the how do you see the race going on? Sure, sure. And well, I, I'm happy to share my opinion about what I what I think works and, and why I think actually you're going to be in a better position to share your opinion about what's working as a client of them and see, seeing the, the, the good and the bad. Um, but I think from the, the bank's point of view, I think centralizing the effort makes a lot of sense. One, there's a whole host of compliance risks associated with scraping the web, PII, you know, personal uh, identifying information, you know, whether something's like material non-public information needs to be handled a certain way. And if you have a, uh, a decentralized approach to that, uh, there's, there's risk because not everybody is going to be an expert on all the nuances of, uh, you know, what data is safe to use. And then the whole problem of, okay, now I got a bunch of raw data, which is a cost. It is useless. You have to do something to it to turn it into an insight. And that potentially introduces all sorts of errors in process or misinterpretations. And so to me, centralizing, uh, having a central team is really, really important, especially, you know, on, on, on the sell side. But I think also my opinion is, I think also on the buy side, you want to, you want a centralized team doing this because really it's going to free up your decision makers to not worry about, well, how do I join this data to that data? And how, how do, do I have the right data contract for it? Like let the centralized team handle it. And then that frees up the decision makers to focus on the so what from the data. So that, that's my opinion of it, why, where it where it should go. But, uh, you know, I can see the benefits of a fragmented approach. There's probably more innovation. There's probably more um, possibility for a great idea to come up uh, through that. But I think there's a lot more risk that way. I've but I guess a, for the question for you, do you do you feel like it works better where it's centralized or do you like that flexibility where you can go pick and choose from all sorts of uh, scattered uh, approaches? Jason, I'm a I'm a I'm a simple podcast host. I, uh, <laughs> I, I just ask questions. I don't, I don't, I don't have any opinions, um, but um, they're good questions, though. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, but. But just on the on the just one more on this theme is that um, I've had uh, a, uh, a a member of the of the buy side say to me a, a kind of a measure of when funds are serious about data and are are kind of major in the space then one of his criteria to judge that is whether their head of data 
has the same amount of buy-in within the institution that mm. you know the portfolio managers or whatever or, or the or the researchers have um and so he and so that's how he judged you know who are the top people in alternative data on the buy side mm. do you see uh the same level of uh, do you see any equality for data people in banks at the moment or are they do you, do you see them as being um treated similarly or are they are they still a slightly weird geeky tech uh offshoot who are who are tolerated but not um not uh at the at the top table in the same way yeah i think i think that the um that seat at the table really needs to be earned. Um, I think at UBS, we started with, you know, that mandate, like the head of research and the COO of research came and said, we're going with a centralized data-driven approach and, and did a lot of, but they did a lot of work internally to convince, uh, and I was part of that, helping convince everybody, that, yes, this is important for you to partner with us and you're gonna benefit. And that I think earned us the, the seat at the table. Um, I think that's the same story that happens on the buy side. So I, I think that is a good benchmark. Like is the, is the, whatever the title may be, the chief data analytics officer or like the head of data or whatever, whatever you want to call it, do they, do they get to that point where they're seen as peers? Uh, but I think, I think you can create that position and say, hey, they're important, but you have to earn it. Because if you're an investor, you're a portfolio manager, you're a decision maker, you're doing a process that's working for you. Or maybe it's not working for you, but either way, it's your process. And now you're asking them to change the way that they work. They're not just going to be like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, they got to believe in it. So I, I think that is, it, it's the right criteria. But then I think the work has to be done to earn it. Okay. Totally good. Um, as always. Totally <laughs> uh, good. Okay. So, um, okay. So here we are. It's 2023. Um you've been doing alternative data for for for, uh, for for a long time where do you see alternative data as being at today where where do you see um would you would you put it somewhere on a kind of gartner curve where you know it's 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 past the hype and it's and it's kind of uh, it's it's coming down into normality i don't know how would you characterize exactly where how how alternative data looks in its in its development in 2023 Oh yeah, I, I I believe in the Gartner hype cycle, and I think alternative data is in the trough of disillusionment. I think that we've gone from the peak hype. In my opinion, the peak hype was 2020 during the pandemic. So all that great stuff that we did that I was really proud of. A lot of other people did that. A lot of data companies came into the market then, and it also was a point when investors and decision makers realized everything that they had done before was completely useless because like if you were waiting for gdp to come out to know what was happening you you were going to lose so you had to be creative and proactive uh but it created a whole bunch of supply and you know that was one question that was extremely important when we went back to many questions and lots of fragmented data not everything is going to work and not everything is well funded and um there's probably way more supply right now than we need. I mean, a few thousand data companies out there. But my, my opinion is we're going to get out of that trough. Maybe not every company is going to make it out of that trough. I mean, there's going to have to be consolidation. But the reality is not the hype and not the trough. It's somewhere in between. And, and to me, it's actually the, the hard part of going from raw data to insight. The work has to be done there because as we were talking about, you know, before, there's you know, we were talking about on the sell side, there's different structures on the buy side, it's the same thing. There's lots of fragmented approaches that can't scale up. It's really hard for them to work with data. 
So you can't get to the inside if you can't work through the hard part of it. And that's the blocker. But I think that goes away as there's more um, advanced software, you know, powered by machine learning, obviously AI, um, you know, and each of those are going to have their own hype cycle too. <laughs> We're going to have to go through, you know, the hype cycle right now on AI where <laughs> uh, probably too much is being expected of it. And I think the reality is though, some of those are going to be really valuable in making it easier to get to insight from data. And then we're going to come back around where people are going to have these amazing tools that do uh, a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of processing and thinking, but then you're going to need the data again. And I think that's going to be the catalyst to getting us out of this trough. And what about, what about the kind of alternative data provider space itself? How do you, how do you see, you, you mentioned consolidation. How do, you, how do you see it all kind of shaking out? What would a more mature alternative data provider world look like, do you think? Sure. I think in industries where the suppliers and the buyers are very fragmented, that the economics end up gravitating to the middle, the distribution channel. And so I do think what will eventually happen is there will be consolidation and the companies that have the scale, maybe it's the Bloomberg's, IHS. I mean, there's other companies that are buying up data sets and packaging them in a way that makes it more accessible to all. They're taking on that pain point of get the data, cleanse it, process it, turn it into something usable, and that, that'll make it more broad-based. That's where I think the economics ultimately are going to go. It's going to be a journey to get there. Uh, and probably right now, the economics are on the buy side because it is so fragmented and they, they have a lot of purchasing power. But uh, longer term, when you look at other industries, the middle is going to end up being where maybe not the highest margins, but the definitely high returns will be. Jason, um, if you want any evidence of, of this happening, it's that you've already used an, an out-of-date uh, title. IHS has already been snaffled up by S&P, so this consolidation <laughs> is already there happening. There you go. There you go. That's right. But, but so we end up with, with, you think we end up very much, and we are somewhat dominated by, by, by large companies with a long tail, but you think the, the big get bigger and the, and the small kind of, disappear or, or there'll always be a few small ones but you just think it'll it'll end up turning into into a, a, a lot of jupiters without with with few with fewer plutos yeah unless those niche data sets are answering a specific question really well and then it'll have its audience that it has but even then if it gets to that point why wouldn't a data conglomerate bring them in Mm. And, and, and roll them up. So if there's product market fit, there's going to be value for these data companies. If it's data for the sake of data, they probably won't survive. Jumping on what you, something you just said, mm. but where do you, have you heard any good, uh, interesting use cases for LLMs? It, it, it seems to me <laughs> that the, the conference season in, the, in this year has been an awful lot of people kind of stro stroking chins and saying, yes, yes, LLMs are very important and it's, it's revolutionizing everything, but no one's very keen to actually talk specific use cases or at least um, the, last, sure. the last conferences I've been to. Sure. Well, I think that's true. I, there, there is this ability, once you have the data, you have a robust knowledge graph and you have a logic layer the LLM is going to turn that to life, but you can't give the LLM a bunch of raw data and say, hey, tell me if I should buy or sell or what's going to happen in this quarter. So, so the, the underneath workings are where I think the magic actually is going to be. But once you get it to a point where it can be interpreted as language, all of a sudden it becomes really easy to be like, oh, here's the insight. And so I think, I mean, before we got to 
the, the GPT and other large language models in Evidence Lab, we were experimenting with just basic NLG, natural language generation, putting that uh, a, uh, an NLG process on top of our data to alert when there were big changes. And I would say that was working, I don't know, 30% of the time. And when I say working means the insight that was identified was actually important. So an example would be, we would look at our app data and the, the machine would say, hey, Amazon's app downloads doubled. But it turns out it's in, I don't know, Latvia. And, and unless you live in, invest in Latvia, that's not important to the Amazon share price. So we needed to bring in more data uh, in the knowledge graph to say what countries are important and what products are important. And so we were, we were, on, that, uh, we were on that journey very early. Um, and so we had a human in the loop just being going like, no, 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 no. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. And we get pushed out to the right people who cared about you know, the, the ticker. Um, I, I've heard, I thought out of the conference season, the one thing that stood out to me was uh, that there are companies that are taking that approach. They, they weren't necessarily presenting on the main stage, but they are starting to think about how do we uh, organize the data so that it's in a knowledge graph? How do we provide some logic so that it can actually do the work? You know, the, it, it's a bit of the training that needs to be done and the fine tuning, but first you need the metrics in the right place in the right shape with the right examples. And then I think the magic of the uh, large language models start to work. Interesting. Okay, totally good. Um, okay, so uh, data discovery, what, where, where would you see, um, how would you see uh, alternative data discovery best methods and pr put yourself in the shoes of a, of a, of a buy side at the moment? What's the best way if you, were, if you were a data sourcer, how would you go about finding interesting data? Yeah, I think, I'm probably gonna go back to that it really starts from what's needed in the outcomes that we're trying to solve for. And if you're on the buy side, there's obviously different um, investment styles and different focuses, different time horizons. So it kind of starts there and works backwards. Um, if, I, if I was gonna say like a fundamental discretionary perspective, which would probably be closer to what um, my, my experience has been, I'm, I'm not as much yeah. of a uh, quant person. Yeah. The debates are constantly changing as soon as the market knows the answer, the value of anything incremental there, just it's not gonna move the needle. So you have to move on to that next question. So I think it's actually in that process of understanding what's next on the horizon and then working backwards to, to find data. And that may lead you down a path that no one's gone before, uh, which yeah. we found a lot of times that we were looking for data that didn't exist and actually finding companies that might have the data and talking to them. I mean, um, at a at a basic level, um, d data on lithium is only only matters when the t technology develops to make lithium valuable. So it's the right. question around around you know how are we going to get all these batteries that actually drives you down towards finding on data on lithium, which becomes very uh, important as lithium becomes right. important. Right. That's a that's a great example. And then what in in the future in this made up future world, maybe that's no longer the debate. Everybody understands where that resource is going to come from. That that's going to be in the share price now. So then there's going to be some new question, and whatever that is, that that's going to drive the uh, the need for finding data. Or it's going back to data that already exists and turning it on its side or asking a different question of it. And most of the time, the 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 data stack, at least in um, in my experience at Evidence Lab, we had so many different data types that we were able to, you know, take the same data and turn it on its side and answer a different question that was important uh, mm -hmm. from the same data set. So, uh, and and then what really we got excited was when we couldn't do that. We're like, okay, how do we how do we figure this out? And 
that that led to new data products being built. So the we, we the... didn't do much with credit card data to, as well. There, um, so we were we were really forced to be very creative on how do we take data and answer questions where um, you know perhaps the, the easiest answer would have been okay, I'm going to go and see what what the transaction trend is for X. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, you've kind of touched on my on my next question, which is which is what will tomorrow's battle look like? Well, maybe not. What do you what do you see tomorrow's battle as looking like between between uh, buy sides in terms of where do you see the the challenge being? Data is now you've kind of mentioned it's when you've mm. got the right question, then you can probably go and find the data which will help you answer it. So finding the data in itself isn't necessarily the challenge, or at least the data of today. Um, where do you, do you have a view on, on, on where we're moving towards and what the fight will look like in the future? Sure. I, I do. I think it's getting, and what I'm hearing from, you know, friends and, and, uh, you know, clients on the buy side, it's getting harder and harder to generate, uh, alpha if in a, in a, let's say in a fundamental discretionary world, the hedge fund world, where you're trying to predict the, the quarterly catalyst from the results, very much focused on revenue and focused on credit card data. Uh, really anything consumer facing, there's so much data out there consumer facing that it's, um, everybody's playing that game and there's now enough history and enough frequency in that space that uh, we're seeing you know, quantitative approaches coming in, maybe even trading on that data daily. So if you're a discretionary PM looking at that data and trying to decide on one, one, one or two big trades in that name for the quarter, like the share price is probably already moving because of the quantitative approach. So, so I think the shift has to happen now that we're gonna say, okay, re consumer revenue for the biggest names is probably pretty well understood before we get to results. Now it's not always perfect, right? The data can you know, have biases and the way it's processed could be wrong. So it's almost like what you gotta do is try to disprove that that data point like it, you want to disprove the consensus and so i think it's not as easy when um the active buy side and sell side consensus range of consolidated around a point that's most likely right there's probably not money to be made then but there's going to be names where there's a you know wider distribution of expectations and when that happens the ability for incremental data to make a difference actually is really quite good but you have to think beyond the, um, the these now core uh, approaches to, to alternative data. So uh, I think that's where it's gonna head. I think also different sectors, um, there's big gaps. I think anything B2B is a big gap. I think soft, software, anything where there's, the revenue is being driven by a sales and buying cycle at a um, you know large institution level where the decisions being made in a room or on a zoom call who's going to sign the contract there's less digital markers out there of what's happening so as as that data becomes more available maybe that's where uh the game will shift and i think also different geographies you know i think the us is pretty well covered but you know it's a global you know market like i think there's other opportunities elsewhere as more data becomes available uh, the, the quant approach though is going to start changing that because once there's enough history and it's proven to work and there's alpha there, that, that's gonna take away that arbitrage. And again, maybe that's something that you'd be really good at talking about, or maybe you just wanna, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually keen to get your take on that. I don't know anything, Jason, I honestly um, But um, one, more, one more question um, would be, and it's, it's, it's a kind of, I suppose it's a back to UBS one, but um, 
was there anything at UBS which you which you wanted to do, wish you could have done, but it wasn't the right situation, didn't have the right access, didn't have the right, you know, was there a data set that you wanted to create or gain access to? Was a was there work that you that you kind of dreamed of doing but just couldn't for whatever reason and and uh, you know in a, in a in a parallel universe you'd have you'd have done it um that's a good question i i think one we really would have liked to have more access to credit card data um mm-hmm. i i i guess one of the concerns that maybe this is going to be a useful conversation for any anybody who's listening who's at a data company there's all there's all this pressure from the buy side to not sell to the sell side I think the reality is the sell side can only do so much with the data and there's so many other things that can be done and different time horizons. Um, I, I do wish that that some of the credit card uh, companies thought uh, like the way that our, you know, app, so, app data providers and clickstream data providers thought about it. Um, so you that would have been fun buy, to play. You felt the buy side was, was leaning on the sell side, on, sorry, on the data providers not to sell it to, to the sell side because if the sell side has it, then everyone's got it. And so the buy side wanted to keep it keep it for themselves yes and i think the i think the reality is that while that is going to put more insights out into the market and that will move the share price and it'll make it harder to generate alpha there is no way that the sell side model as it exists can cover every debate in every time horizon you know with that data and so um i i actually see it a little bit differently but uh, that, but I, there is that pressure on data companies to not sell to the sell side. And if you're a data provider, that's not a bad thing. So like if we, okay, so earlier in my career, European beverages, I'm purchasing scanner data from, you know, we use Nielsen, we used IRI. Everybody had that data. <laughs> like, and we would rush. And when the monthly data came out, we would rush to be the first one to say what would happen. But I think the real value in that data is actually going deeper into more fundamental questions. But we couldn't not pay for that data. Like I couldn't be an analyst covering European beverages and not know what was happening in the scanner data. So if you're yeah. a data company, that's actually where you want to be. Um, you know, and others have referred to it as becoming the beta instead of the the alpha. And yeah. I, I totally buy into it. That's where it's heading. And it does mean that there's going to have to be some difficult conversations between data providers and probably the first earliest adopters of their data on the buy side who, you know, they don't want ex- necessarily want exclusive access because that sort of gets into this material yeah, non-public yeah. space. But if, you know, if it's available and, and it's expensive and they're able to buy it, they're kind of happy with that. So, yeah. uh, but if you want to be a successful data company, you eventually need to be broad-based and out there. Um, what, would you have, what would you have done with the credit card data if you'd had access? So I don't think we would have been so focused on predicting the quarter. I'm sure we would have done that, but I actually think we would have done what we did with all our other data. We would have taken big long-term thematic questions that played out over three to five years and tried to figure out what was going to happen next beyond the quarter from the data and thinking about what the underlying drivers of the health of the business are. So like, you know, and, and it's combining with lots of other data. And customer sets. behavior, trying to That's understand right. customers' relationship with the, with, the, with the companies from their maybe long-term relationship with the, with the companies. Right. And that's, and that's on a, a horizon that works for the sell side. Like, yes, analysts are constantly updating their estimates, but so much goes into that. Like, I don't see a world where the sell side analyst is just going to be updating their estimate daily because one data point's telling them to do that. Yeah. 
Interesting. Interesting, Jason. Well, thank you so much. That was, uh, this has been a, a very interesting, interesting conversation. Um, as I say, as I said, I thoroughly enjoy your, your uh, presence online and, uh, and uh, you've, got a, you've got a newsletter and you've got very interesting posts on LinkedIn. So I encourage everyone to, uh, to, to follow up and get involved in that. I think you do consulting work as well, which is available. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wish you, I wish you the very best of luck with, with, with all of that and any future endeavors that, that come along as well. I really appreciate all that positive feedback and having me on. And yeah, if anybody wants the newsletter, it's free. It's the data score. Uh, it's on Substack, uh, but I also post it to LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, I post some extra thoughts about things here and there. Um, you know, always available uh, to network. Uh, I feel like I'm making up for uh, lost time this past year because I, I felt like in Evidence Lab, I spent so much time focused on keeping 300 cell site analysts happy and 200 uh, data professionals aligned with all the different things we were doing and all the pivots. So um, it's good to be in the community and, and getting to chat with people like, like yourself and, and others. Uh, and I really appreciate, again, uh, having me on the podcast. And uh, I really enjoy your podcast. I don't miss it every time it comes out. <laughs> Fantastic. Great to hear. Well, thanks, Jason. And uh, speak soon. All right, thanks.